Hallelujah, Christ is risen. My name is Art Going. Um, I'm going to introduce myself for a while yet because we haven't all met, and uh, you may have forgotten my name. I'm the new assistant rector. Um, I will be bouncing in and out in two-week segments for the next couple of months. Um, occasionally, my wife Nancy will be in town with me, as she is now this weekend, and uh, at the end of June, we are going to move here. Um, we're excited about sharing life with you all here in this beautiful valley, this wonderful city. Um, you have 30% of me. Uh, the other 70% belongs to the bishop. I am, am his canon for leadership development, but uh, my whole heart is here. And uh, we've decided that it's a wonderful privilege to be able to live and work here and to move out from here to do my work for the diocese. We started this morning, and we just did it again, this little saying, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And you all dutifully, from memory, responded, the Lord is risen indeed, Alleluia. You, you know that, most of you. Um, I'm guessing that there may be a few of you who haven't quite gotten accustomed yet to this, to this uh, notion that it's still Easter. Some of you all are probably thinking, because you didn't grow up in a church that did an elongated season of Easter, you're, you're thinking, Easter was five weeks ago. What are these guys up to? What, why are they doing this? Why are they still talking as though Easter is still here? Do they just like to party a lot? One of the great joys of living in the great tradition and using liturgy and the seasons of the year and the church calendar is that we get to, as Christians have for 2,000 years, we get to be reminded for an entire season, 50 days from Easter Sunday to Pentecost, we get to remember that every Sunday is a little Easter, that we are Easter people. And we don't even confine that faith to a season, but we need a whole season to shape our thinking and our praying and our singing and our worshiping so that we never forget that we gather in the name of a risen Lord. Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. And it has implications. So this is not just a, a little liturgical throwaway sentence. This is not just a formal way of beginning things. This is a potent reminder to us that the resurrection is, as Aubrey has already said to us this morning, is the beginning of new creation. And in baptism, we receive an Easter life. The first fruits, when the Spirit is poured out on us as it was on the apostles, we get to anticipate every Sunday that new creation, that one day will be complete. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Welcome to the sequel. You know about sequels, right? Spider-Man, Iron Man, X-Men, Star Wars, or the vastly superior Star Trek. Godfather, two, you can forget about three. Batman, although there the, the whole sequel thing gets pretty complicated. Lord of the Rings. Ah, forget that too. Read the books, they're better. And Shrek, of course. 
We all know about sequels. We're beginning a sermon series this morning that comes right in the middle of an already started sermon series. Sermon series about being Easter people. But now we're shifting gears. We've spent the year up till now in the Gospel of Luke, and now we're shifting into the book of Acts. Acts is a sequel. It's not a sequel in the way we often think of it. People usually say, well, volume one of Luke's two-volume work is all about Jesus. And then comes volume two, Acts, and we often refer to it as the Acts of the Apostles. And we say, whereas Luke was all about Jesus, Acts is all about the church. It's a sequel. It's not a sequel, though, in that sense. Luke and Acts are so tightly bound together, not one about Jesus, the other about the church, but rather two stages of ministry of the same Jesus Christ. We read today, in the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. So Luke's gospel he tells us, was all about what Jesus began to do. He was powerful in word and deed, Luke tells us. Now we're going to turn the page, and we're going to dive into the book of Acts, where Jesus continues in word and deed to do what he had begun to do, according to Luke's gospel. We're going to hear sermons from apostles. We're going to see stories of signs and wonders that validate their proclaimed message. We're going to see all the implications of resurrection. What Jesus began on earth, in the flesh, now he continues, risen and ascended at the right hand of the Father from heaven. Luke was about his ministry on earth, personal, public, the book of Acts, Where we're going to dwell from now until Advent is all about his ministry, Jesus' own ministry from heaven, through the Holy Spirit, by the apostles, and by us, his church. The ascension of Jesus, about which you'll hear more next Sunday, is the hinge. It's it's the watershed. The ascension of Jesus, when he returns to the Father, is where he inaugurates his heavenly ministry. So it's better really not to call it the Acts of the Apostles or even the Acts of the Holy Spirit, as some have suggested. It's really the Acts of Jesus continued. The book of Acts is the continuing mission of the exalted Christ by the agency of his Spirit to give salvation to the church and through the church to the world. I stole that definition. Let me read it again. Craig Bartholomew. On the website, he's still listed as theologian in residence at Church of the Incarnation, though I've never met him, never seen the guy. I suppose he'll come back one of these days. But this is what he wrote. The book of Acts is about the continuing mission of the exalted Christ. The continuing mission by the agency of his spirit. The spirit is the one now working to give salvation to the church and through the church, through us, to the world. We're in continuity with the early church. We're taken up into the early church's mission. Their story is our story. 
in volumes 1 and 2, Luke's Gospel and the book of Acts, we also see just how unique Christianity is among the religions of the world. Most of the religions I know anything about commemorate a leader who's no longer with us. They remember everything that that leader said and did. They look back. We celebrate a living Lord. Jesus had only begun his ministry during his lifetime. Now, we're going to learn about how he continues that ministry, how he continued it in the early church in the first century. First and foremost, through the ministry of chosen apostles, but subsequently through the church of every time and every place. How Jesus today continues his kingdom ministry through you and me. Through big churches, scandalous churches, tiny churches, struggling churches. I'm looking at you, my brother Bishop, this morning, and, and thinking of the disappearance again of your village. I'm thinking of 160 brothers and sisters in Christ, a living Easter church in Ethiopia that was attacked this week, a brand new Anglican seminary, temporarily, we pray, shut down. We can't imagine what Christians elsewhere in the world are going through, but we do know this, whether in comfort and opulence or in poverty and threatened by persecution, Christians everywhere are the recipients of the continuing ministry of the risen Lord Jesus. Luke was about the historical Jesus. We're going to start learning and coming to meet again powerfully the contemporary Jesus. I don't mean trendy, modern. I mean the Jesus who is alive and here today, as powerfully active in gospel kingdom ministry as ever before, active through the Holy Spirit, promising to be with us the end of the age. Jesus made provision for the continuation of his ministry on earth through the apostles, from heaven through the Holy Spirit, and he equipped the apostles, Luke tells us, for that ministry. He chose them, handpicked. He showed himself to them, Luke says. He ate with them. He commanded them. He commissioned them. He sent them out as apostles, that is, as his ambassadors, his envoys, his delegation to preach repentance and forgiveness. Next week we'll hear how the whole church has been sent out to be his witnesses. He charged them with to preach his message. He gave them his own authority, his own power. He promised his own spirit would fill them. The work of the exalted and reigning Christ to pour out salvation on the world Everything that Jesus began to do and teach, as Luke describes in the, in the gospel, all that Jesus now continues to do and teach, even after he has returned to the Father. Jesus is at work now, primarily through his Spirit, who pours out gifts. The gifts we'll 
remember and celebrate on Pentecost Sunday in a few weeks. Gifts that give the church power to take the message of salvation to the whole world. Let me just say Craig Bartholomew's um, definition one more time so it gets cemented in your memory. Acts, where we're going to live for a while, is the con- about the continuing mission of the exalted Christ, the Christ who is now at the right hand of the Father. Through the agency of his Spirit, giving salvation to the church and through the church to the world. The second book, the book of Acts, is about what, the, what Jesus is doing and teaching now. Jesus, Jesus isn't just about a, a memory for us. He's a person who can be known and loved, obeyed and followed. He's a person who is active. You can read the book of Acts on, on, on two levels. Level one, it's an interesting story, a, a dynamic story, at times a, a, a freaky story. An amazing story, an almost incredible story about the early church. You can read it on the second level. I've already been suggesting this this morning. You can read it as a book about Jesus, who is the principal actor, still so ascended. But there's a third level, the level Tom Wright describes as about a play in which we are invited to become actors ourselves. And that's really the central message of this message this morning and of this series of messages for the next months on the book of Acts. The story that Acts will tell us in unfolding excitement is about a play in which we're invited to become actors ourselves. The story continues, and we're part of it. The story based on the resurrection of Jesus. And that's why we began this morning. He's risen. Hallelujah. This transformed Jesus, this resurrected Jesus, the beginning of new creation, through the book of Acts, will show us how heaven and earth are coming together in a new way. Acts describes the opening acts of the grand drama. We'll meet the Holy Spirit, with whom you may or may not be well acquainted. We'll see a spirit who is alive, present, powerful. Present already in the telling of the story when Jesus is teaching about what is to come. And Luke says to the disciples, I, I, love, I love on either side of the watershed, which is the ascension story. I love how Luke's gospel ends and Acts 1 begins. Luke says, the angels at the empty tomb say, go to Jerusalem and wait until you have been clothed with power on high. And then virtually echoing that same command and promise at the beginning of Acts, we read, while staying with them, Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. Wait. Pray as you wait for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. Find your calling and your energy from that source. This is a play, 
a drama in which we are all called to take different parts. A play in which the only true acting, the only authentic acting is what happens when the spirit of the playwright, namely Jesus himself, takes charge. It's about what Jesus is continuing to do and to teach through his followers, through the church. We're going to have to attune our ears as we wind our way through the book of Acts. We're going to have to attune our ears to hear this story differently. You may, you will certainly along the way encounter stories. We'll preach on stories that, that you think you know dead, that you just have them in your memory. You've heard them dozens of times. You'll think you've got their message captured, but we're going to have to attune our ears to hear the story differently because this is a story about the church, and that's not how we normally talk about the movements of the Spirit and and the continuing ministry of Jesus. We tend to individualize almost everything. Even all the plural yous in the New Testament, we make them about me, you. One of the things that that the book of Acts, this second part of the grand drama, is going to... uh, reshape in our thinking and our praying is to refocus our attention on how God is active through the church. And that's going to be new for some of us. The story of Acts is the story of how Jesus continues to act and to teach through his church. I actually grew up not very clear about that part of the message. It's why a lot of Christians, I think, are guilty or feel guilty most of the time because they're not doing all of the things that they think they've been charged to do by the resurrected Jesus, the things that they're empowered to do by the Holy Spirit, when many of those things, as we will discuss in coming weeks, are things charged to the church, not necessarily to every individual. Already next week, um, I mean, I can't preempt Aubrey's sermon, but already next week when we hear uh, the book of Acts talking about, you shall be my witnesses, um, we're going to have to unpack that word. What does that mean? If you're not a natural evangelist, if you don't have dozens of notches on your conversion belt, How does that make you feel? What the church does and teaches, Acts tells us, is all about what Jesus is doing and teaching. And you can expect, and this is where it will get alarming at times, you can expect that when the church does and teaches what Jesus did and taught in the book of of Luke, Gospel of Luke, and what Jesus is doing and teaching now, you can, uh, you can fully expect that the, that will produce the same reaction that Jesus produced during his public career. If we're faithful to his ministry, to his teaching, then we can expect to fly in the face of the spirit of the age. If you don't feel how acutely we are at odds with the culture, if you don't know intimately already how the Christian gospel, the message of the kingdom, contradicts the received wisdom of our culture, this series will be good for you. 
reacquainting you with just how countercultural the kingdom message is. So, the vision of the church's calling is to be the means through which Jesus continues to work and to teach. So how is that attainable? That sounds like a grand vision. How do we even hope to achieve that? I mean, look at the church. Tom Wright says, it may be a cliche, but it's actually true in most people's estimation of the church. They look at Christians, they look at congregations, and they say, God is believable, but the church is unbearable. They say Jesus is appealing, but the church is appalling. An Academy Award was given this year to the film Spotlight, which is what is indeed an appalling and sadly continuing story of abuse by priests. There are stories all around us of churches that are abusive, and toxic. With alarming frequency, you can read stories of pastors who fall, some because of adultery, many more because of pride. Why be surprised? If you're surprised by any of that, Read Ezekiel 34. Read about a shepherdless church, an abused church. Or even when they don't fall, the Christian movement of our time is filled with celebrity pastors and celebrity congregations. You look at that church and you say, How will we ever be the means through which Jesus continues to work and to teach? But we know, praise God, that's not the whole story. We know that there are thousands, most of them unnoticed, unnamed, doing a great job, doing gospel work, servant work. I was telling Nancy uh, yesterday that um, I've been reading lately about um, uh, a guy named Brian Bakke. Uh, he's from a very well-known missionary family. Uh, we meet regularly, a cohort of us in D.C., at his uncle's home. His, his uncle started a public utility company um, uh, headquartered in, in Washington, D.C. It's a, it's a global co- company. He started this company in order to become a multimillionaire so that he could support his brothers and sisters in missionary work all over the globe. His nephew, Brian, um, does exploratory work in, in the poorest places on the planet, finding ministries that he can uh, write grants for and get money for. Uh, one of his most exciting tales, the one I was telling my wife about this week, uh, is about a church plant. We know church plants. We sent Kevin out to Elkton. There'll be more t- church plants in, in in the coming decade in the valley, we hope and pray. This church plant is in the ugliest, most deadly prison in Mexico. The pastor is an inmate. There are dozens of churches. There are 10 worship services every day somewhere in that prison. The parish council is made up 
of murderers and thieves, child molesters, all redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the continuing ministry of Jesus through the agency of his Holy Spirit is happening in an ugly, stained place on the planet. We know if we paid attention to Luke's gospel, what Jesus taught and did, what he began. We know that the way Jesus worked then and works now is through forgiveness and restoration and healing and reconciliation. Not through celebrity and fame and personal wealth and glory. We know that because what Jesus began to do, what Jesus began to do in the life of Peter. Read the end of John chapter 21 and you see what Jesus began to do and how he began to do it in the lives of others through a fallen man, through a deserter, through one who betrayed him, through one who denied him. And that climactic scene where Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? You can just feel the pain in Peter's response each time. Having to answer three times, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my sheep. Do what I began to do. Continue my ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit. We'll hear a lot this year about how Peter lived into that commission. How Peter continued the ministry that Jesus had begun. We know if we've paid attention to what Jesus began to do that the church is not a society of perfect people doing great work. That's why Jesus, when he encapsulates the commission to the church, when he describes what this continuing ministry in the power of the Holy Spirit should look like, he says, repentance and forgiveness should be proclaimed in his name. The church of the book of Acts is a society of forgiven sinners, repaying an unpayable debt of love by working for Jesus' kingdom in every way they can. This church, this message is for all the nations, Luke tells us. I mean, that's thoroughly unbelievable. But the presence of Bishop Andudu in our midst is a living and potent reminder that the gospel isn't just for Americans or Europeans. It's for Sudanese. It's for Somalis. It's for Ethiopians. It's for Nigerians. It's for Tanzanians. It's for... Japanese, and, and all the places that the church has reached with the good news. The book of Acts will introduce us along the way to a Jesus who exercises sovereign lordship in the present, including strange and often secret sovereignty over nations and rulers. Now, in one sense, 
as I've tried to paint this morning, Acts begins where the Gospel of Luke left off. With an emerging recognition that God is creating new possibilities, that God is bringing long-promised things to fruition. It's a whole new world, a new creation. Acts is a sequel in that sense. And all along the way, we're going to hear Jesus' promises, the promises we've already become acquainted with in Luke's gospel, ringing in our ears. We'll be yearning, thirsting to hear more. Already this year, we've heard Jesus say in Luke 22, for example, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you, just as my Father has conferred on me, a kingdom. Then we heard... Yes, and last Sunday, thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance and forgiveness is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations. You are witnesses. I'm sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here until you've been clothed with power from on high. I'm sending upon you what my father promised. Do you remember what he promised? That's a huge part of what Jesus began to do. He promised us a kingdom. He promised us power. He promised us forgiveness extended to all. He promised us work to do. So if you carry nothing else emotionally into this series on the book of Acts, carry with you at least an expectation of big things. Come expecting that God's going to do something. That Jesus is going to equip and call into action his people. Jesus kept a promise to Peter, thrust him into leadership. He said, once you're back on your feet again, turn and strengthen your brothers, the others who bolted with you at crunch time. So in one sense, Acts begins where Luke left off. In another sense, though, Acts doesn't exactly pick up where Luke left off. So Acts actually cycles the story back a little bit this Sunday and next and takes us into a 40-day period a period that we remember every year between Easter and Ascension Day, which we move from Thursday to Sunday, and then 10 days more from Ascension to the fulfillment of the promise at Pentecost. Acts slows down, steps back in time just a little bit to throw in a few additional promises, information about what will soon involve the disciples. And then this, Jesus says, wait. That's not what I would expect to read. I would have expected that Jesus, who began all of this exciting ministry in, the book, in, in, in Luke's gospel, now would commission and, and move the apostles out. Get them going. Send them right now. Boom. But he says, wait. Wait in the city until you're baptized with the Holy Spirit. Wait until you're clothed with power. I'm thinking they must be really eager. I'm thinking they must be terrified. Simple request. Wait. There's a lot coming. 
power, spirit, testimony, kingdom, expansion. Oh, and yeah, opposition. Acts fixes our attention and our expectation on all of that, on the God who has promised all of that. Acts reminds us that we're playing a part in God's unfolding drama. What's next? Wait. The angels at the empty tomb didn't say, okay, time to get back to work. A call to wait. And waiting is going to be another important thing we need to learn from the book of Acts. Waiting reminds us of our dependence on God. Waiting reminds us of the limitations of our ability. Waiting reminds us that we need to be a responsive community, an answering community, waiting on God to initiate. Waiting isn't just sitting around, not just reminiscing, not just contemplating a bright future. In Acts 1, verses 12 through 14, we're reminded that they constantly devoted themselves while they waited to prayer. The waiting you and I need to learn will train us to be available and attentive, ready to respond. And even that's countercultural. For many of us, waiting probably feels like indecisiveness, weakness, wasted time. Waiting is all about learning to be a follower. The apostles did what they were commanded to do. They waited, not because they saw it as the only option. They waited, not because they have to figure out everything before moving. They expect God to open up opportunities and new realities. And when God does, they'll be privileged to play a vital role. Wait for the Lord, Psalm 27 says. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait. For the Lord. And the prophet Isaiah says, They who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. The gospel story is a continuing drama. He's alive. His spirit is among us. It's a drama that involves you. Wait. Wait for the Lord. And when he sends you, don't hesitate. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.